Good morning to everybody. And God is good all the time. Okay, I never know what my voice is going to be doing until I get up here. Maybe this will be okay, maybe it won't, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, today is uh, Orphan Sunday, and thousands of churches across the United States and across the world, for that matter, are focusing on the need of children who have no parents, no home, no family. And um, there is a little thing on the front of the bulletin, just some statistics that you might be interested in that kind of uh, describe the situation statistically. And uh, I'm saying if you have time, take a look at that. But I just want to talk about, uh, for about 10 minutes here, we're going to be looking at a lot of Scripture. And then we're going to kind of talk uh, about a lot of those things. But for a few moments here, we're going to be looking at quite a few things that come from Scripture. First thing I want to say is the orphan was always included in the laws of the Old Testament, which tells me something about what God thought of them. God saw the need of the orphan, and he made provision for them. And so a few verses to look at here to think about. Psalm 68, 5 and 6. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. That's just one of those verses you could find in the psalm, probably several like that as you go along that talk about God's uh, concern and care for the orphan. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses uh, 17 through 22. And this is uh, some instruction from God about how they did their harvesting. And he wanted them to harvest in such a way that uh, there was always something left in the field behind for those who were needy to partake of. Deuteronomy 24, 17. You shall not pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. In order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand. And when you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. And when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. And so you see, God was kind of providing, he was providing for taking care of the alien, the orphan, and the widow by instructing Israel not to harvest too closely or too completely. And in addition to this law, which told the Israelites not to harvest too closely, there was another law which commanded the tithe of the third year. Now, there was a tithe made every year, and the normal thing that was done with those tithes is they were given to the Levites in order to support them. But every third year, something else happened with this money that was collected, or these gifts that were made. This is Deuteronomy chapter 26 and verse 12. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, then you shall give it to the Levite, to the stranger, to the orphan, and to the widow. 
that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. And so here was another one of God's provision uh, to feed the alien, the orphan, and the widow by saying, you know, in that in every three years you're going to take not, you're not going to just give it to the Levites, but you're going to divide it out among those who have need. And so when Israel did not respond as they should have to the things that God was telling them, God sent the prophets to call them to obedience. And so we're looking at Isaiah chapter 1, 16 and 17. This is Isaiah, about the year 750 B.C. And, uh, of course, uh, Israel never really got into obeying what God said to do. Uh, It just didn't happen. Uh, There were small periods of time when things happened the way they should. But for the most part, they didn't. And so the prophets are calling, calling them back. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. And plead for the widow. Rather than that, though, the people of Israel were abusing the orphan, the widow, and the alien. And so this was about the 8th, 8th century. About 200 years later, God caused the nation of Israel or Judah to go into uh, captivity, hopefully to uh, discipline them to the point that they would learn their lesson. But even after the uh, even after the uh, uh, the captivity then which they experienced, we come to Malachi chapter three and verse verse five. This is the fourth century, just after the uh, captivity in Babylon. Listen to what Malachi says: Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages and against the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And even after those 70 or 80 years in Babylon, in captivity, which God gave to them as discipline, they still hadn't quite figured it out. And afterwards, Malachi the prophets got to start calling them back again to the right way of thinking about people. In our new covenants, in our new testaments, clearly God is still expecting his people to care for the fatherless and widows. And probably the best known verse we could call up here is James 1.27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So when God wanted to describe his relationship with his people, He often used the figure of adoption, the comparison of adoption. I want to look at two places in in the prophets here where God uses a comparison. In Hosea, Israel, the nation of Israel, is pictured as a boy in slavery in Egypt. And God saw the need of this boy. God saw the need of that nation. He delivered them from slavery. He gave them a new home. And in so doing, God chose Israel as his son. This was the adoption. Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. And Ephraim is just another name for Israel. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of compassion with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. And then just a few verses later, God adds these words. 
How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? And uh, those are two obscure little towns that were kind of suburbs of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they're actually listed as being destroyed in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But these people knew about them. And so he says, how can I make you like Admah? How can I destroy you like that? How can I treat you like Zeboim? And how can I destroy you like that? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. And so God is uh, caring about a faithless nation. And he doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to punish them. He doesn't want to do anything to them. But he, he's adopted them. He took them in. He made them his son, so to speak. And, and, and he treated them as any good father would treat them. And yet they've turned around and they've gone off in another direction. That's the, the general drift of what's happening in Hosea. Now I want you to look at Ezekiel. Because here God compares Jerusalem, which is, is a way of saying Israel too. God pictures Jerusalem as a, a newborn baby girl. Listen to this. Well, a newborn baby girl who was unwanted and abandoned by her parents and left to die along the road. And he takes her in and he gives her a home and he loves her and supplies her need. And when she comes of age, she forgets who loved her and cared for her. And she begins to chase after the Baals and the Molechs and the Ashtaroth. Here we are, Ezekiel chapter 16. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. Let's go on to verse 3. And say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut. You know what it means if your navel cord was not cut? You're still attached to the afterbirth. Someone just gave birth and pitched you out. He says, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleaning. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in clothes. No, I looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. What he's describing here is the condition of Jerusalem and uh, describing something that happened fairly often. Uh, if a baby was born to uh, a woman or, or born to a woman that she didn't really want, uh, they didn't do abortion so much as they just took the baby and laid it out in the field somewhere and went on their way and let wild animals or whatever. Didn't, they didn't know what happened to that child. That's what's happened to this baby right here, this little girl baby. And so uh, he says, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. No mother and father hated this child, put her out. But here's what, here's what God says. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. It's an amazing uh, comparison that God makes here as he adopts the nation, adopts Jerusalem. He treats her as if she is a, 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 a girl baby that's been just thrown out along the road. In our New Testaments, God uses the figure of adoption, too, to describe our relationship with him. And our scripture reading this morning was Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. 
And so what we were reading here in the Old Testament, using that comparison, shows up again in the New Testament. When the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So through God, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. And so here's a use of, God uses this adoption idea to describe the relationship that's formed between him and every human being when they become his child. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. God's predetermined plan for all of mankind is that they would all enter, become one of his through the process of adoption. Not that they were born in the sense of a, a regular birth, but made his children through the process of adoption. That was God's predetermined plan, according to the kind intention of his will. And then we come to Romans chapter 8, verse 15, and then verse 23. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption, as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And so the adoption begins when you receive the Spirit. But I want you to notice what happens now in Romans 8.23, just about uh, maybe eight or nine verses later. And he says, not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And this is like so much that's been promised to us as Christians there's a, there's a sense in which all of God's blessings, we've already, we've already received some portion of that, but there's so much more to come. The reception of the Spirit is our adoption into the family of God. And the final work of adoption is to, be, to have our bodies redeemed in the great resurrection. And so it's in our New Testament you'll find this idea of adoption used over and over. All right, that's enough with, with Scripture here for a while. Uh, thank you for paying attention. When Paul uses the word adoption, he was writing to people of the Roman world. And I want you to know that adoption meant something different to them as compared to our own time. For us, adoption is about providing a child with a home and a family and parents because, primarily because of what the child needs. Now, I know the parents get an awful lot out of it, too. That family receives an awful lot as they receive that child. There's a blessing in that. But primarily what's in mind with adoption in our day and time is that this child has great need, and it can be supplied by by this particular family. That's what we think of when we hear the word adoption. But in Rome, adoption was usually about providing an adoptive father with a reliable and trustworthy heir. And it was never a child, sometimes a young person, But usually it was another adult that the adoptive father trusted. And so uh, adoption wasn't about helping a needy child. It was about finding a trustworthy adult heir, someone who could uh, inherit property and manage property and possessions and power. And you could even inherit position through the process of adoption. If the person who adopted you was someone who had a particular kind of job or a particular governmental position, Once he adopted you, you would just kind of step right into that at the time that he died. 
And so in ancient Rome, an heir could not only inherit your property, but they could also inherit your position. And the most famous examples of this uh, are, are things which the Roman Caesars did themselves. Caesar Augustus adopted Tiberius as his son. And when Augustus died, Tiberius simply stepped in as the new Caesar of Rome. He was adopted, but treated as a son who could inherit. And Claudius Caesar adopted Nero as his son. So when Claudius died, Nero just stepped right in. He became the next Caesar. And most of the uh, uh, Roman Senate, the seats were passed on from generation to generation by this same process, the process of adoption. Now, all that would certainly make sense to Paul's original audience to talk about the inheritance we have because we've been adopted by God. We're given a position. We're sitting on the throne at the right hand of God in Jesus Christ. That's what we talk about. You can read that in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, we've been given a great inheritance. Everything that Jesus is inheriting, we are going to inherit. And so that, that aspect of adoption certainly made, makes sense to us and makes sense to, made sense to the, the Christians who are reading this at this particular time. But there are some other amazing similarities between Roman adoption and our spiritual adoption by God. Number, and i got three of them I want to mention to you here. Number one, in Roman adoption, the adoptive son or daughter became a new person in the eyes of Roman law and society, a totally new person. The past of that person, the person whose being was adopted, was for all intents and purposes wiped away. It's as if the previous life had never existed. Um, that, was, uh, that was just how they did it. Uh, all, all the debts that had been uh, accumulated along the way were wiped away. They were given a totally new identity, a new name. They had no responsibilities to people who were in their past. It was a complete break with the past. You had become a totally new person. You become the son of the person or the daughter of the person who had adopted you. So you had a new identity. Well, stop and think about what happens when we become Christians. And I'm just thinking of that verse there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And, and there, there's Paul talking about it. He says, you know, that's what adoption is about. The, the, everything that, uh, from, from my past, everything that went on before is over and done with. It's wiped clean. It's like it never existed. Now, new things have come. And so when we're adopted into God's family, we get a new identity. Our past is gone. Our sins are forgiven. We have a new father. We have a new name, a new inheritance, a new life, a new beginning. And so there's a part of Roman adoption that really translates very well into the idea of adoption in our New Testament. So I, I like that similarity. Here's the second thing I want you to know about Roman adoption. In Roman adoption, the adopted son or daughter was equal to a natural born son or daughter in every way. They were equal in every way to a natural born son or daughter. Adopted sons or daughters were as legitimate as natural born children. In fact, there were cases where sometimes a Roman man would adopt a son, even though he already had natural sons. If he thought that his natural sons were irresponsible or untrustworthy or just stupid or whatever you want to call it, he would go find someone that he liked, someone that he felt that he could trust, someone that he, uh, you know, uh, disciplined. 
And he would adopt that person and make them the heir, the major heir of the estate. And so the Roman father could adopt and name the adopted son as the main heir of his estate. I want you to just look for a moment at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. It's a verse we sing about. And we sing these words and we read these words all the time. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the sons of God. By adoption, we have become the sons, the children of God. Here's the third thing I want you to know about Roman adoption. The adopted son or daughter was expected to give complete fidelity to the father and to the family. I want you to think about how that compares to our spiritual adoption by God. When we wear the name of our new father and our new family, we are expected to live up to what the name means. And so in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 4, I mean, all through the New Testament, we're told, hey, you are a child of God now. Hey, you are a Christian. Hey, you are, you're part of the family. So, you know, there's a certain walk that God has for you. There's a certain path he wants you to walk. He loved you enough to save you the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you the way you are. So 1 John 2 and 4, as an example. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. John is just saying, hey, you've got to be consistent. You can't say one thing and, and, and live another way. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. Peter has this to say, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And what, uh, what Peter is telling us, and, and, and what adoption was all about, was upholding the honor and the name which you have just inherited. The new name, the new family. To not do anything that would bring shame upon it but to live a life consistent with the person who has now become your father and consistent with the family that you claim that you are now a part of. So, those are the similarities, but there's one huge difference between Roman adoption and the adoption of God. And here it is. When the Roman man went looking for someone to adopt as his son or daughter, He went looking for the very best person he could find. He wanted someone who was healthy. He wanted someone who was good-looking and well-liked and respected in the community. He wanted someone who was educated and disciplined. He wanted someone with character, someone he could trust, someone who would benefit him. When he got to the point where he was no longer able to care for himself, he could trust this person to care for him and to manage his affairs. He was looking for someone like that. But that's not the criteria that God uses for his adoptions. You know, God adopted Israel when he was a a slave, a helpless and needy little boy in slavery in Egypt. He adopted Jerusalem as his daughter, and he found her laying alongside the road, uh, bloody and needy and desperate in 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 a terrible mess. And God chooses his sons or daughters not for their beauty or their brains or their education. He never chooses anyone for how they might benefit him. The truth be told, there is nothing we can do to benefit God. But he chooses his sons and his daughters because of their great need. 
a need which only he can satisfy. I want you to look at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. For while we were still helpless, laying alongside the road with the afterbirth still attached and bloody and mess, or a slave boy in Egypt, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When God went to the orphanage, he wasn't looking for the brightest and the best and the prettiest and the strongest and the fastest and all that. He was looking for the one who needed him the most. You know, there are many children available for adoption today. And I realize there are perhaps some difficulties in adopting here as opposed to uh, other countries. And I don't know all the ins and outs of that. I I hear one thing and another. But I, I think we can safely say that there are many children available for adoption today. But many of them, in fact, most of them, will never have the joy of being a part of a forever family. And do you want to know why? This is not very flattering to us. Because they are less than perfect. They're less than perfect. Most people uh, are looking for a little newborn baby, healthy and pink and cuddly and sweet and free of any serious defects or problems. But there's not too many of those kind available. What we do have are many, many children with problems, special needs, health problems, fetal alcohol syndrome, drug addicted, uh, mentally impaired in some way, birth defects, emotionally disturbed. And and you could add a, a, a thousand other possibilities there to all that. But when God came to the orphanage, he didn't come looking for the brightest and the smartest and the prettiest. He came to the orphanage looking for the one that nobody else wanted. And that is the love of God. God would never turn anyone away. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants those little pink cuddly ones, those pretty ones. He wants those just as much as he does anybody. But just as much as he wants those little pink cuddly ones, he loves the ones that nobody else wants. And that is the love of God. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the sons of God. We have a little sign out there on, uh, our, on one side of the sign, the sign that faces towards Sauderville. And uh, I saw that on a billboard down in Dallas, Texas, about a month ago, and I I just thought, man, that's what we need to put up at our church. Nobody perfect is allowed in here, (laughs) okay? And I've had had some people comment about that, and they said, well, I don't guess we can come to your church. We're not, we're perfect. They were trying to be funny. Nobody perfect allowed in here, come as you are. And I was just thinking, you know, God wants to adopt us all. He wants us all to be his sons and his daughters. And maybe there is someone here this morning 
but he's not a child of God. You've not been adopted into the family yet. Maybe uh, if you were to, maybe today is your day. And when we sing this hymn of invitation, I'm just inviting you to come to the front and say, I want to be a child of God. I believe in Jesus. I'm ready to repent. I'm ready to, I'll say it to anybody that I do believe in Jesus. And I'm ready to be baptized. You can be added to the body of Christ. You receive the Holy Spirit. That's the beginning of your adoption. And then comes the last day, the great day of the resurrection. When your body, the adoption is finished. That will be a great day. And we receive our inheritance. If there's anyone here this morning who needs to respond to the invitation of Christ, as we sing this song, I just ask you to please come to the front. We have elders on both sides here. And... uh, you can go to them or you can come to me, whatever you choose. But let's stand and sing.